Section 14 of The Art of Music, Volume 2, Classicism and Romanticism. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Part 1. Modern History, the history of modern art and modern thought, as well as that of modern politics, dates from July 14, 1789, the capture of the Bastille at the hands of the Parisian mob. Carlyle says there is only one other real date in all history, and that is one without a date, lost in the mists of legends, the Trojan War. There is no political event, no war or rumor of war among the European nations of today which, when traced to its source, does not somehow flow from that howling rabble which sweated and cursed all day long before the prison, symbol of absolute aristocratic power, overpowered the handful of guards which defended it, and made known to the king, through his minister, its message, Sire, this is not an insurrection, it is a revolution. For a century and a quarter, the mob of July 14th has stood like a wall between the Middle Ages and modern times. No less than modern politics, modern thought, and all its artistic expression date from 1789. For, against the authority of hereditary rules and rulers, the mob of the Bastille proclaimed another authority, namely that of facts. The notion that forms should square with facts, and not facts with forms, then became the basis of men's thinking. This truth had existed as a theory in the minds of individual thinkers for many decades, even for many centuries, but the Parisian mob first revealed the truth of it by enacting it as a fact. From that fact, the truth spread among men's minds, forcing them, according to their lights, to bring all forms and authorities to the test of facts. Babies, who were thought to be the next generation's great men, were brought up in this kind of thought and were subtly inoculated with it so that their later thinking was based upon it, whether they would or no. And so men have come to ask of a monarch not whether he is a legitimate son of his house, but whether he derives his authority from the will of the nation. They have come to ask of a philosophy not whether it is consistent, but whether it is true. And they have come to ask of an art form, not whether it is perfect, but whether it is fitting to its subject matter. When we come to compare the music of the 19th century with that of the century preceding, we find a contrast as striking as that between the state of Europe as Napoleon left it, with that as he found it. The Europe of the 18th century was for the most part a conglomeration of petty states, without national feeling, without standing armies in the modern sense states which their princes ruled as private property for the supplying of their personal wants, with power of life and death over their subjects, states whose soldiers ran away after the second volley and whose warfare was little more than a formal and rather stupid chess game, states whose statesmanship was the merest personal intrigue of favorites. Among these states, a few half-trained mobs of revolutionary armies spread terror, and the young Napoleon amazed them by demonstrating that soldiers who had their hearts in a great cause could outfight those who had not. 
So, in contrast to the crystal-clear symphonies of the 18th century and the vocal roulades and delicate clavichord suites, we find in the 19th century huge orchestral works, grandiose operas, the shattering of established forms, an astonishing increase in the size of the orchestra and the complexity of its parts, the association of music with high poetic ideas, and the utter rejection of most of the prevailing harmonic rules. And with this extension of scope, there came a profound deepening in content, as much more profound and human as the Parisian mob's notion of society was more profound and human than that of Louis XVI. The Revolution and the Napoleonic Age, which had been periods of dazzling personal glory, in which individual ability and willpower became effective as never before, had stimulated the egotistic impulses of the 19th century, people came to feel that a thing could perhaps be good merely because they wanted it. Hence the personal and emotional notes sound in the music of the 19th century as they never sounded before. The sentimental musings of Chopin, the intense emotional expression of Schumann's songs, the wild and willful iconoclasm of Berlioz's symphonies were personal in the highest degree. And, as the complement to this individual expression, there dawned a certain folk or mob expression, for the post-Napoleonic age was also an age of national awakening. The feeling of men that they are part of a group of human beings rather than of a remote empire is the feeling which we have in primitive literature, in the epics and fairy stories, the ballads and folk epics. This folk feeling came to brilliant expression in Liszt's Hungarian Rhapsodies, and the deep heroic note sounds quite as grandly in his symphonic poems. Music took on a power, by the aid of subtle suggestion, of evoking physical images, and in deeper sincerity it achieved something like accurate description of the emotions. A thousand shades of expression, never dreamed of before, were brought into the art. Man's ears became more delicate, in that they distinguished nuance of tone and phrase, and particularly the individual qualities of various instruments, as never before. It was the great age of the pianoforte, in which the instrument was dowered with a musical literature of its own, comparable in range and beauty with that of the orchestra. The instruments of the orchestra, too, were cultivated with attention to their peculiar powers, and the potentialities of orchestral expression were multiplied many times over. It was the great age of subdivision into schools and of the development of national expression. The differences between German, French, and Italian music in the 18th century are little more than matters of taste and emphasis, variations from one stock. But the national schools which developed during the Romantic period differ utterly in their musical material and treatment. It was the golden age of virtuosity. The technical facility of such men as Kalkbrenner and Czerny came to dazzling fruition in Liszt and Paganini, whose concert tours were triumphal journeys and whose names were on people's lips like those of the great national conquerors. This virtuosity took hold of people's imaginations. Liszt and Paganini became, even during their lifetimes, glittering miracular legends. Their exploits were, during the third and fourth decades of the century, the substitute for those of Napoleon in the first fifteen years. 
Their exploits expanded with the growing interrelation of modern life. The great growth of newspaper circulation in the Napoleonic age and the spread of railroads through the continent in the thirties increased many times the glory and extent of the virtuoso's great deeds. But the traveling virtuoso was a symbol of a far more important fact. For in this age, musicians began to break away entirely from the personal patron. They appealed for their justification and support from the prince to the people. The name of a great musician was, thanks to the means of communication, spread broadcast among men, and there was something like an adequate living to be made by a composer-pianist from his concerts and the sale of his compositions. From the time of the Revolution on, it was the French state, with its conservatory and its theatres, not the French court, which was the chief patron of the arts. And from Napoleonic times on, it was the people at large, or at least the more cultured part of them, whose approval the artist sought. In all essentials, from the fall of Napoleon onward, it was a modern world in which the musician found himself. But it is evident that we cannot get along far in this examination of romantic music without reviewing the outward social history of the time. It is a time of colors we can never discover from a mere observation of outward facts and dates, for it is a time of complexities of superficial intrigue likely to obscure its meaning. We must therefore see the period, not as most historians give it to us, but as a movement of great masses of people and of the growing ideas which directed their actions. Royal courts and popular assemblies were not the real facts, but only the clearing houses for the real facts. The balances on one or the other side of the ledger which they showed bear only the roughest kind of relation to the truth. It is well to skeleton this period with five dates. The first is the one already met, 1789. The next is the assumption of the consulate by Napoleon in 1799, which was practically the beginning of the empire. The next is the fall of Napoleon, which we may place in 1814 after the Battle of Leipzig, or in 1815 after Waterloo, as we prefer. The next is 1830, when, after conservative reaction throughout Europe, the mobs in most of the great capitals raised insurrections and in some cases overthrew governments and obtained some measure of constitutional law. And the last is 1848, when these popular outbreaks recurred in still more serious form and with a proletarian consciousness that made this revolution the precursor of the 20th century as certainly as 1789 was the precursor of the 19th. We cannot here give the details of the mighty and prolonged struggle. We shall only recall to the reader the astounding sequence of cataclysms and exploits that shook Europe, roused its consciousness strata by strata, remodeled its face, its thoughts, its ideals, its laws, and its arts. Paris was the nervous center of this upheaval, the stage upon which the most conspicuous acts were paraded. But every blow struck in that arena re-echoed, multiplied throughout Europe, just as every wave of the turmoil originating in any part of Europe recorded itself upon the seismograph of Paris. From the tyranny and unthinking submission of before 1789, we passed to a period of constitutional tolerance of the monarchical form, 
thence to the aggressive propaganda for Republican principles in the terror, thence to the personal exploits of a popular hero arousing wonder and admiration while imposing a new sort of tyranny. Stimulated imaginations now give birth to new enthusiasms, stir up the feelings of national unity and pride. To consciousness of nationality succeeds consciousness of class, reactions and restorations bringing new revolutions, successful mobs impose terms on submissive monarchs at Paris in 1833 as at Berlin in 1848. Then finally follows the Communist Manifesto. France, Germany, Austria, Hungary, Bohemia, even England, were convulsed with this glorious upheaval. And not kings and soldiers alone, but men of peaceful moods, working men, men of professions, poets, artists, musicians, were born into this whirlpool of politics. Musicians of the 18th century had no thoughts but of their art. Those of the 19th were national enthusiasts, celebrants of contemporary heroes, political philosophers, propagandists, and agitators. What wonder? Since the days of Julius Caesar, had there been any concrete events to take hold of men's imaginations as these did? They set all men thinking big. If the difference between a Haydn symphony of 1790 and Beethoven's Ninth of 1826 is the difference between a toy shop and the open world, is not the cause to be found mainly in these battles of the nations? Not only Beethoven, Berlioz, Chopin, Liszt, and Wagner, the political exile, were affected by the successive events of 1789 to 1848. As proof of how closely musical history coincides with the revolution wrought by these momentous years, let us recall that Beethoven, the real source of romantic music, lived at the time of Napoleon and by the Eroica symphony actually touches Napoleon, and that by the year 1848, which is the last of those dates which we have chosen as the historic outline of the romantic movement in music, Schubert and Weber were long dead, Mendelssohn was dead, Chopin was almost on his deathbed, Schumann was drifting toward the end, Berlioz was weary of life, and Liszt was working quietly at Weimar, which had been for years one of the most liberal spots in Germany. And as if Wagner's dreams of a mighty national music attended the realization of the dream of all Germany, the foundation stone of the National Theater at Bayreuth was laid hardly a year after the unity of the German Empire was declared at Versailles in 1871. How shall we characterize the music of this period? In musical terms, it is almost impossible to characterize it as a whole. For the steady stream of tradition had broken up violently into a multitude of forms and styles, and these must be characterized one by one as they come under our consideration. As a whole, it must be characterized in broader terms, for the assertion of the Parisian mob was at the bottom of it all. Previously, men's imaginations had been bounded by the traditional types. They took it for granted that they must contain themselves within the limitations to which they had been born. But since a dirty rabble had overturned the power of the Bourbons, and an obscure Corsican had married into the house of Habsburg, men realized that nothing is impossible. Limitations are made only to be broken down. 
The intellectual giant of the age had brought this realization to supreme literary expression in Faust, the epic of the man who would include within himself all truth and all experience. And, whereas the ideal of the previous age had been to work within limits and so become perfect, the ideal of this latter age was to work without limits and so become great. Throughout the first half of the 19th century, this sense of freedom to achieve the impossible was the presiding genius of music. And with it, as a corollary to it, came one thing more, a thing which is the second great message of Goethe's Faust. The idea that truth must be personally experienced, that while it is abstract, it is non-existent. Faust could not know love except by being young and falling in love. He could not achieve his redemption by understanding the beauty of service. He must redeem himself by actually serving his fellow men. And so in the nineteenth century men came to feel that beautiful music cannot be merely contemplated and admired, but must be lived with and felt. Accordingly, composers of this period emphasized continually the sensuous in their music, developing orchestral colors, dazzling masses of tone, intense harmonies and biting dissonances, delicate half-lights of modulation, and the deep magic of human song. The change in attitude from music as a thing to be admired, from music as a thing to be felt, is perhaps the chief musical fact of the early 19th century. Part 2 let us now consider the great Romantic composers as men living amid the stress and turmoil of revolution. All but Schubert were more or less closely in touch with it. All but him and Mendelssohn were distinctly revolutionists, skilled as composers and hardly less skilled to defend in impassioned prose the music they had written. As champions of the new in music, they are best studied against the background of young Europe in arms and exultant. But in the case of Franz Schubert, we can almost dispense with the background. His determining influences, so far as they affected his peculiar contributions to music, were almost wholly literary. He was an ideal example of what we call the pure musician. There is nothing to indicate that he was interested in anything but his art. He lived in or near Vienna during all the Napoleonic invasions, but was concerned only with escaping military service. Schubert was the last of the musical specialists. From the time when his schoolmaster father first directed his musical inclinations, he had only one interest in the world, outside of the ordinary amusements of his bohemian life. If Bach was dominated by his Protestant piety and handled by the lure of outward success, Schubert worked for no other reason than his love of the beautiful sounds which he created, and of which he heard few enough in his short lifetime. Yet even here we are forced back for a moment to the political background. For it is to be noticed that the great German composers of the late 18th and early 19th century found their activities centered in and near Vienna. Haydn, Mozart, Beethoven, and Schubert are all preeminently Austrian. In the second quarter of the 19th century, that is, after the death of Schubert, there is not a single great composer living in Vienna for more than a short period of time. The political situation of Vienna 
the stronghold of darkness at this time, must have had a blighting effect on vigorous and open-minded men. At a time when the most stimulating intellectual life was surging through Germany generally, Vienna was suffering the most rigid censorship and not a ray of light from the intellectual world was permitted to enter the city. Weber felt this in 1814 in Austrian Prague. He wrote, The few composers and scholars who live here groan for the most part under a yoke which has reduced them to slavery and taken away the spirit which distinguishes the true freeborn artist. Weber, a true freeborn artist, left Prague at the earliest opportunity and went to Dresden, where the national movement, though frowned upon, was open and aggressive. Schubert, on the contrary, because of poverty and indolence, never left Vienna and the territory immediately surrounding. In the preceding generation, when music was still flowing in the calm traditions, composers could work best in such a shut-in environment. It is possibly well to remember, however, that Austria had a fit of liberalism in the two decades preceding Napoleon's regime. But with the 19th century things changed. When the beacon of national life was lighting the best spirits of the time, the composers left Vienna and scattered over Germany or settled in Paris and London. Schubert alone remained, his imagination indifferent to the world beyond. In all things but one, he was a remnant of the 18th century, living on within the walls of the 18th century, Vienna. But this one thing, which made him a romanticist, a link between the past and the present, a promise for the future, was connected, like all the other important things of the time, with the revolution and the Napoleonic convulsions. It was, in short, the German national movement expressed in the only form in which it could penetrate to Vienna namely the Romantic movement in literature. Not in the least that Schubert recognized it as such. His simple soul doubtless saw nothing in it but an opportunity for beautiful melodies, but its inspiration was the German nationalist movement. The fuel was furnished in the 18th century in the Renaissance of German folklore and folk poetry. The researches of Scott among the Scotch Highlands Bishop Percy's Relics of English and Scottish Folk Poetry, the vogue which Goethe's Werther gave to Ossian in his supposed Welsh poetry, and most of all the ballads of Bürger, including the immortal Lenore, contributed toward the end of the century to an intense interest in old Germanic popular literature. Uhland, one of the most typical of the Romantic poets, fed in his youthful years on old books and chronicles with wonderful pictures, descriptions of travel in lands where the inhabitants had but one eye, placed in the center of the forehead, and where there were men with horses' feet and cranes' necks, also a great work with gruesome engravings of the Spanish wars in the Netherlands. When he looked out on the streets, he saw Austrian or French soldiers moving through the town and realized there was an outside world of romantic passions and great issues a thing Schubert never realized. Even then, he was filled with patriotic fervor, and his beloved Germanic folk literature became an expression of it. In 1806-8 appeared Armin and Brentano's Des Knaben Wunderhorn, a collection of German folk poetry of all sorts, 
mostly taken down by word of mouth from the people, which did for Germany what Percy's Relique had done for England. Under this stimulus, the German Romantic movement became, in Heine's words, a reawakening of the poetry of Middle Ages, as it had manifested itself in its songs, paintings, and architecture, placed at the service of the National Awakening. But patriotic fervor was the underground meaning of the Romantic movement. This hardly penetrated to Schubert. He saw in it only his beautiful songs and the inspiration of immortal longings awakened by old books and chronicles with wonderful pictures. He had at his disposal a wonderful lyrical literature. First of all, Goethe, originator of so much that is rich in modern German life, Rickert and Camiso and Müller, singers of the personal sentiments, Körner, the soldier poet, and Uhland, spokesman for the people and apologist for the radical wing of the liberal political movement, Wieland and Herder, and in the last months of his life, Heine, ultra-lyricist, satirist, and cosmopolite. From this field, Schubert's instinct selected the purely lyrical, without regard to its tendency, with little critical discrimination of any sort. Thanks to his fertility, he included in his list of songs all the best lyric poets of his time. And to these poets he owed what was new and historically significant in the spirit of his musical output. This new element, reduced to its simplest terms, was the emotional lyrical quality at its purest. His musical training was almost exclusively classical, as far as it was anything at all. He knew and adored first Mozart and later Beethoven, but these composers would not have given him his wonderful gift of expressive song. And since it is never sufficient to lay any specific quality purely to inborn genius, innate genius is, on the whole, undifferentiated and not specific, we must lay it, in Schubert's case, to the Romantic poets. From the earliest years of his creative, as opposed to his merely imitative, life, he set their songs to music. He found nothing else so congenial. Inevitably, the spontaneous song called forth by these lyrics dominated his musical thinking. The romantic poets had taught him to create from the heart, rather than from the intelligence. Franz Schubert was born at Lichtenthal, a suburb of Vienna, in 1797, one of a family of 19 children, of whom 10 survived childhood. Instructed in violin playing by his father, nearly all German schoolmasters played the violin, he evinced an astounding musical talent at a very early age, was taken as boy soprano into the Vienna court chapel, and instructed in the musical choir school, the Convict, receiving lessons from Rukshishka and Sayeri. At 16, when his voice changed, he left the Convict, and during three years assisted his father as elementary school teacher in Lichtenthal. But in the meantime, he composed no less than eight operas, four masses, and other church works, and a number of songs. Not until 1817 was he enabled, through the generosity of his friend Schober, to devote himself entirely to music. Never in his short life was he in a position to support himself adequately by means of his art. As musical tutor in the house of Esterhazy in Hungary, 
1818 to 1824, he was provided for only during the summer months. Salieri's post as Weisskapellmeister in Vienna, as well as the conductorship of the Kärntnertor Theater, he failed to secure. Hence he was dependent upon the meager return from his compositions and the assistance of a few generous friends, singers like Schoenstein and Vogel, who made his songs popular. Narrow as his sphere of action was the circle of those who appreciated him. Public recognition he secured only in his last year with a single concert of his own compositions. He died in 1828 at the age of 31. During that short span, his productivity was almost incredible. Operas, mostly forgotten, their texts alone would make them impossible, and some lost choral works of extraordinary merit. Symphonies, some of which rank among the masterpieces of all times, fourteen string quartets and many other chamber works, piano sonatas of deep poetic content, and shorter piano pieces, moments musical, impromptus, etc., poured from his magic pen, but especially songs, to the number of 650, a great many of which are immortal. Schubert was able to publish only a portion of this prodigious product during his lifetime. Much of it has since his death been resurrected from an obscure bundle of assorted music found among his effects, and at his death valued at ten florins, two dollars and twelve cents. A perfect stream of posthumous symphonies, operas, quartets, songs, every sort of music, appeared year after year, till the world began to doubt their authenticity. Schumann, upon his visit to Vienna in 1838, still discovered priceless treasures, including the great C major symphony. As a man, Schubert never got far away from the peasant stock from which he came. He was casual and careless in his life, a bohemian rather from shiftlessness than from high spirits, content to work hard and faithfully in demanding nothing more than a sidle of beer and a bosom companion for his diversion. He was never intellectual, and what we might call his culture came only from desultory reading. He was as sensitive as a child and as trusting and warm-hearted. His musical education had never been consistently pursued. His fertility was so great that he preferred dashing off a new piece to correcting an old one. Hence his work tends to be prolix and, in the more academic sense, thin. Toward the end of his life, however, he felt his technical shortcomings, and at the time of his death had made arrangements for lessons in counterpoint from Sechter. It is fair to say that we possess only Schubert's early works. Though they are some 1,800 in number, they are only a fragment of what he would have produced had he reached threescore and ten. By the age at which he died, Wagner had not written Tannhäuser, nor Beethoven, his third symphony. In point of natural genius, no composer, excepting possibly Mozart, excelled him. His rich and pure vein of melody is unmatched in all the history of music. We have already pointed out the strong influence of the great Viennese classics upon Schubert. In forming an estimate of his style, we must recur to a comparison with them. 
We think immediately of Mozart when we consider the utter spontaneity, the inevitableness of Schubert's melodies, his inexhaustible well of inspiration, the pure loveliness, the limpid clarity of his phrases. Yet in actual subject matter he is more closely connected to Beethoven. It is no detraction to say that in his early period he freely borrowed from him, for in Mr. Haddow's words, Schubert always wears his rue with a difference. Again, in his procedure, in his harmonic progression, and the rhythmic structure of his phrases, he harks back to Haydn. The abruptness of his modulations, the clear-cut directness of his articulation, the folk flavor of some of his themes are closely akin to that master's work. But out of all this material, he developed an idiom as individual as any of his predecessors. The essential quality which distinguishes that idiom is lyricism. Schubert is the lyricist par excellence. More than any of the Viennese masters was he imbued with the poetic quality of ideas. His musical phrases are poetic, where Mozart's are purely musical. They have the force of words. They seem even translations of words. They are the equivalents of one certain poetic sentiment and no other. They fit one particular mood only. In the famous words of Liszt, Schubert was le musicien le plus poète qui fit jamais, the most poetic musician that ever lived. We may go further. Granting that Mozart, too, was a poetic musician, Schubert was a musical poet. What literary poet does he resemble? Hadau compares him to Keats. A German would select Heine. For Heine had all of that simplicity, that unalterable directness, which we can never persuade ourselves was the result of intellectual calculation or of technical skill. He is so artless an artist that we feel his phrases came to him ready-made, a perfect gift from heaven, which suffered no criticism, no alteration or improvement. Schubert died but one year after Beethoven, a circumstance which alone gives us reason to dispute his place among the Romantic composers. He himself would hardly have placed himself among them, for he did not relish even the Romantic vagaries of Beethoven at the expense of pure beauty, though he worshipped that master in love and awe. It must be delightful and refreshing for the artist, he wrote of his teacher Salieri upon the latter's jubilee, to hear in the compositions of his pupils simple nature with its expression, free from all oddity, such as now dominant with most musicians, and for which we have to thank one of our greatest German artists almost exclusively. Yet, as Langhans says, not to deny his inclination to elegance and pure beauty, he was able to approach the master who was unattainable in these departments, orchestral and chamber music, more closely than any one of his contemporaries and successors. Yes, and in some respects he was able to go beyond. With less general power of design than his great predecessors, he surpasses them all in the variety of his color. His harmony is extraordinarily rich and original. His modulations are audacious. His contrasts often striking and effective, and he has a peculiar power of driving his point home by sudden alterations in volume of sound. In the matter of form, he could allow himself more freedom. He could freight his sonatas with a poetic message that stretched beyond conventional bounds, for his audience was better prepared to comprehend it. 
and while his polyphony is never like that of Beethoven or even Mozart, his sensuous harmonic style, crystal clear and gorgeously varied, with its novel and enchanting use of the enharmonic change and its subtle interchange with the major and minor modes, supplies a richness and variety of another sort and in itself constitutes an advance, the starting point of harmonic development among succeeding composers. By these tokens and by a peculiar quality of imagination in his warmth, his vividness and impatience of formal restraint, he points forward to the generation that should rebel against all formality. But above all, by his lyric quality. He is lyric where Beethoven is epic, and lyricism is the very essence of romanticism. Whatever his stature as a symphonist, as a composer in general, his position as a songwriter is unique and of more importance than any other. Here he creates a new form, not by a change of principle, by a theoretically definable process, but a free artistic creative activity such as only a true genius, a rich personality not forced by a scholastic education into definitely limited tracks, could accomplish. The particular merit of this accomplishment of Schubert will have more detailed discussion in the following chapter. But aside from that, he touched no form that he did not enrich. By his sense of beauty, unaided by scholarship or the inspiration of great deeds in the outer world, he made himself one of the great pioneers of modern music. Together with Weber, he set the spirit for modern piano music and invented some of its most typical forms. His moments musicales, impromptus, and pieces in dance forms gave the impulse to an entire literature, the Fantasiestücke of Schumann, the songs without words of Mendelssohn, are typical examples. His quartets and his two great symphonies, the C major and the unfinished B minor, have a beauty hardly surpassed in instrumental music, and are inferior to the great works of their kind only in grasp of form. His influence on posterity is immeasurable, not only in the crisp rhythms and harmonic sonorities of Schumann, in the sensuous melodies and gracious turns of Mendelssohn, but in their progeny, from Brahms to Grieg, there flows the musical essence of Schubert. Who can listen to the slow movement of the mighty Brahms C minor symphony without realizing the depth of that well of inspiration, the universality of the idiom created by the last of the Vienna masters? Schubert's music was indeed the swan song of the Viennese period of the history of music, and it is remarkable that a voice from that city, more than any other in Europe bound to the old regime, should have sung of the future of music. But so Schubert sang from a city of the past. Meanwhile, new voices were raised from other lands, strong with the promise of the time. End of section 14